Good morning again. If you have a Bible and you want to turn with me to Mark 7, it's where we'll be camped out this morning, covering the first half of this chapter. And uh, as you turn there, let me just give you a little bit of background uh, for this passage. If you weren't here that last week, Drew covered the end of chapter 6, which details uh, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. And underlying those miracles, Drew pointed out, was a continuing unveiling of who Jesus is, the question of who is this guy and what has he come to do for us? And so as we walk along in Mark's narrative through this book, we're going to see the gradual unveiling of Jesus's identity and his purpose. Who is he? What did he come for? What does this mean for you and me? And so this week, as we turn to chapter 7, we're going to see some more of those layers pulled back as Jesus, in an interaction and confrontation with the religious leaders, gets very direct, very blunt, and honestly, somewhat unsettlingly so. So we're going to see that continue on in Mark as we move towards uh, the Passion Week in a few chapters. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and and read our text. We're going to be looking at the first 23 verses of Mark chapter 7. This is God's word for us. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within 
and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. So would you say with me, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, I have two young children, and my favorite part about parenting young kids is bath time. Said no parent ever in the history of the world. Bath time is the pits. Literally, it's awful. It's the worst. From the time that they're born, and got a little reminder of this holding hope as I splashed her with water, that terrifying first bath that you give your child, where you think the water might actually dissolve this frail human being, to the time, at least where we are with an almost five-year-old, bath time is a constant battle. It's a battle trying to convince my kids that they are dirty and that they need to be clean. Shocker. At Build on Wednesday night, Tony was was leading our our conversation, and he started out by asking, what are the things that we want to see for our kids as they grow up into adulthood? And one of the things that crossed my mind was, if by the time my kids are adult, are adults, it would be great if they could wash themselves by themselves without crying. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'll believe it when I see it. It hasn't happened yet. Um, but it's a hard concept for them, and it's a battle. And in some senses, that idea of becoming clean and the struggle that it is, that never really changes for us. It's still difficult. See, this passage centers that the issue going on centers on being clean versus being defiled. And it's one of the harder passages and interactions that we've had in Mark so far. This issue of washing and cleansing is a tough one. And the scene is set as the religious leaders uh, coming, uh, come up from Jerusalem to talk to Jesus. And these aren't the backwoods preachers coming up from Yeehaw Junction to talk to Jesus. These are the bigwigs coming from the capital. They've traveled a long way to the north, sea of Gal- the north shore of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus is to talk apparently about taking a bath. We see the challenge that they bring in verse 5 when he says, why don't your disciples, and by implication you as well, why don't you guys follow our traditions And wash yourselves before eating. Now, I think on the surface, this seems like a reasonable thing. In last week's sermon, Drew didn't really cover the last four or five verses of chapter six, but what is happening right at the end of chapter six is Jesus and his disciples are at a place called Gennesaret, and they are being swarmed by diseased people. There's so many. There's so many sick people around Jesus and his disciples that Mark says they're just trying to reach out and touch his cloak. So you can imagine how pressed around Jesus and his disciples these people are. And so maybe you'd be thinking, like I did when I was reading this passage, you know, Peter, you know that leprous and bubonic guy that was all over your face? You might want to go wash yourself. You might want to clean yourself, at least before eating the bread. But As you may already know, the washing that these guys are talking about, the issue that they have is not about hygienic washing, but it's about ritual cleansing, about becoming ritually clean. So what is that? Because we don't do that. But we have to understand that this issue, the concept of ritual cleansing was a big deal for the people of Israel. As you can probably guess by the fact that these guys have traveled over 100 miles to talk to Jesus about it. Ritual cleansing was tied into the very identity of what it meant to be an Israelite. 
And it ties back into the Old Testament law, and there's a lot uh, related to this, but let me boil it down to this, that the mission of Israel, the purpose, their mission statement, was to be a nation that was set apart, that was distinct from the world around them. They were to be unique. In other words, they were called, God called them to be holy, set apart and pure in a way that reflected the holiness of God. Remember, God's holiness is his defining characteristic. It's what the seraphim were singing over and above the throne, back and forth to each other. Holy, holy, holy. This is who God is. And as he called his people to be set apart, he was calling them to be holy. The problem is, the people of Israel were not holy. Nobody is. Again, In Isaiah, if you think back to that scene, what is Isaiah's response to being ushered into God's throne room? Oh, shoot, I shouldn't be here. Right? There's this imagery in, in what he's saying of almost coming apart at the seams. He says, woe is me, I am lost. Why? Because I'm unclean. I am not worthy to be here. Think about Moses in the the scene at the burning bush where God's holiness is emanating from that place. And what does God say to Moses? He says, don't come any closer. Don't come closer and take off those filthy sandals because where you are standing is holy ground. You are not holy, but I am. So God is the source of life and purity and perfection. John says he, he, he is light and in him there's no darkness at all. But we, on the other hand, bring death and impurity and imperfection. What does Jeremiah say? The human heart is deceitful above all other things. It's the worst thing. So do you see how there might be a problem of those two things existing in in the nation of Israel, where God says, my holiness is going to dwell in the middle of you. So what he did, into that problem, God gave the Israelites a series of laws, specifically of ceremonial laws, to reconcile themselves and their uncleanness to his cleanness, as it were. And again, there's a lot there, but essentially, uh, especially surrounding things that involved death or that reminded uh, reminded the people of death, whether it was disease or blood, some of those things they needed to become ritually pure from. So let me just stop there. As we seek to apply this passage and what's underlying Mark 7 to our lives, let me just point out a couple of things that I hope have been clear so far. The first thing is that God is holy. He is utterly other than us. The biblical imagery, if, if you read scripture, the, the imagery associated with God's holiness is a white-hot, consuming fire. This is what the author of Hebrews says. He says, our God is what? A consuming fire. And so, if the concept, if the reality of God's holiness is not part of your understanding of who God is, then honestly, you need to go and spend some more time getting to know who he is better. He is holy. The Bible does not hide that. But far too often, we want to downplay his holiness, the one who is pure, so that we can feel better about our sin. Because the problem of the uncleanness of the Israelites is our problem too. Notice in Mark, it's interesting, Jesus' response to them bringing up this issue of uncleanness. He doesn't shy away from the topic of defilement. 
He doesn't kind of go theologically liberal and say, no, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. You guys are worried about trying to be clean, trying to be acceptable. Don't worry about that. It's not a big deal. He says, you want to talk about defilement? Let's talk about defilement. You want to talk about what makes you unclean? Let's go for it. You're worried about washing couches. You're worried about washing copper pots. But do you know what festers in your heart? Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, coveting, wickedness, deceit, on and on. See, the problem that Jesus is trying to expose, the problem is not out there with them, with those unclean people, but the problem is in you and in me. Here's, that's the issue. And so here's the problem. Here's what Jesus gets so, so upset about is that the, the reason, one of the throbbing reasons why Jesus gave, or why God gave the law, why God ins- instructed the people of Israel on how to live, is to highlight and expose that very problem, that the problem is in you, and it's impossible for you to keep it. Let me say that again. One of the main purposes of the law is to highlight and expose that you cannot keep it. So if you're here today and you're new to Christianity, or maybe you're familiar with it, but if you're here today and your concept of Christianity is to look at the Bible and say, you know, here's the rules, here's the instructions, here's the law, and I, what, what my faith is about, what Christianity is about, is just trying to do this to the best of my abilities so God will be pleased with me, then you need to know that God says it's not going to happen. That's not how it works. You guys do... Uh, community Bible reading, which is a great resource, um, and I've gone to a few of uh, the men's Tuesday, I think it's on Tuesday mornings, the men's Tuesday CBR readings, and uh, you recently read through the Torah, uh, the first five books of the Bible in CBR, and I know this because I went to one of the, the meetings, and while you were still in Deuteronomy, I think it was Deuteronomy chapter 14, Jonathan was leading this, And uh, it's all about unclean versus clean foods. Foods that you can eat, but foods that you shouldn't eat. Uh, And and this is, again, ceremonial laws in Old Testament Israel. But I remember Jonathan starting off our time by saying, well, guys, I guess let's read some more random and complex laws. It sounds very like Jonathan, right? I guess let's go for this. But, the, but he's actually right. Just reading through the law is exhausting. Can you imagine trying to live it, live it out day to day? But that's the point. The law is to magnify how righteous and how holy God is and how impossible it is to perfectly live up to that standard. St. Augustine wrote this about the law. He said, the law bids us, it calls us. As we try to do it, as we try to fulfill its requirements, And we become wearied in our weakness under it to know how to ask the help of grace. That's what the law calls us to do. You can't do it. You're not supposed to. But here's what had happened. That in the time between the giving of the law and the coming of Jesus, the religious leaders had looked at the law and they said, you know what? I think we got a shot here. I think we can do this. Little tweak here or there. Let's make it a little bit more manageable. We can add some things that we can control. We can add some more laws to make us feel better. And I think that we can do this. So they developed a system of their own traditions. These are the traditions that they're concerned about, that they're worried about, 
But what had happened was rather than being driven to weakness and to grace, as Augustine wrote, they were driven to self-righteousness, self-accomplishment, and self-aggrandizement, lifting themselves up over others. We see this example that Jesus actually pulls out from their traditions in verses 10 through 12 about this whole idea of Corban. And so let me just explain what's going on there. God had given a pretty clear direction in the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother. Love them well, honor them, or die, Jesus says. But the scribal traditions had kind of built a workaround. They said, you know, God did give that, but he also gave us some directions about oaths, about keeping your promises. Those are important too, and so is giving to God. Tithing is important, and uh, aging parents can be pretty costly. They're not very cost-effective. And we can't really kill them because God's pretty clear about murder, um, So that's kind of off the table, but it'd be really nice to not worry about the financial strain of your aging parents. So how about this? How about you can make a binding oath, you can dedicate some of your resources that would go to helping them, you dedicate them to God. You declare Corbin, dedicating them to God. You reserve it for God, and that way, if you've made that oath, you can't break that oath and give it back to your parents because God wouldn't be happy about that. God surely wouldn't want you to break that oath. And so when they die, you can actually retain those things that would have gone to them as long as you're responsible with how you spend that thing or how you use that resource. Now, what does God say? What does Jesus tell us is at the heart of the law, at the very center of the law? Jesus says it is Love. Matthew 22. How does he sum up the Ten Commandments? Love God and love others. They can be summed up in those two things. Outward directed, self-sacrificial pouring of yourself to others and worship to God. You decrease, they increase. But do you see what is at the heart of this legalistic system of legalism itself? It's yourself. It's propping yourself up. It's going after your own interests and your own gains to the, to the detriment of others. And here's the deal. Here's what we need to understand. This doesn't go away. It's really easy to look at what the Pharisees were doing and say, man, that's really messed up. And it was. But it doesn't go away. Paul Miller, who has written a lot of discipleship materials that you guys use, he says this. He says, legalism, by definition is any human tradition that you elevate to the level of or above God's law. Any human tradition that is elevated up to God's law. And this can look a lot of different ways. Jesus points this out in verse 13. He says, you're making the word of God nulled, void, empty by your traditions, and you're doing this in a lot of ways. It doesn't just look like classic what we think of as classic legalism. So get this, you can be legalistic about going to church. And you can be legalistic about not going to church. You can be legalistic about reading your Bible, and you can be legalistic about not reading your Bible. You can be legalistic about private Christian education and its values. And you can be legalistic about public education and its values. What are the traditions that we hold 
over and above God's law to love him and love others? What are the things that we are propping up to put ourselves over and above others and God's law? How about work? That is a fine American tradition I've found. Uh, we've been in Europe, and Europeans are so confused about how work-obsessed Americans are. But it, it is a good value, right? We want to work hard, but how about if work is placed over and above Sabbath, genuine Sabbath, not just going to church, but actually having a Sabbath and having the faith to trust the Lord to provide or work above our families and to the neglect of our families? How about comfort? This is a really fine Southern American tradition. I mean, you can even see it ingrained in how we talk about our food. What is Southern food? Southern comfort food. We love comfort. But do we elevate comfort over the risk of sharing the gospel with our non-Christian friends? Because we don't have the words, or we're not an evangelist, or that would just be uncomfortable Is that a tradition that is being elevated? What about our politics? Your political affiliation and the way that you view things or the way that you vote overseeing the value and dignity of the person on the other side of the aisle. Does politics prevent you from loving others of a different opinion? Or how about finances? Finances and the desire to maybe get towards a comfortable level over tithing, which is an act of worship, or over mercy and care to the poor. Or, if you want to flip that around, for me as a missionary, how about lack of comfort and lack of finances as evidence that I am holier than you all? It's pretty messed up, right? Do you see how the human heart is so capable at deflecting and hiding from the truth of God's grace and of his law in order to try and justify ourselves, in order to insulate our hearts, to show that we are better than them. And Jesus' response to this approach, to this attitude, is absolutely blistering. It is as fired up as he has been in, in Mark so far, right? Look at how Jesus responds to the twisting of what God, by his grace, has given The commentators agree that this whole thing, by the way, is just laced with sarcasm. He says, you hypocrites. You hypocrites. You're not worshiping with your hearts. You're worshiping with your lips. There's nothing in it. It's vain. You're leaving the commandments of God to hold on to and to cling to your own traditions, your own sense of self-righteousness. You reject what God says in order to elevate, to lift up and prop up what you want to see happen in your life. You're making the word of God void and empty with your own rules, and you're doing this in so many different ways. Jesus doesn't leave a lot of room for us to wonder about how he feels about the twisting and the suppressing of God's law and God's call in our life with our own agendas and traditions. And if that intensity that he responds with, it it surprises or unsettles you, then good, it's supposed to. Because as we apply this passage to our hearts, we should be humbled. So, where do we go? Right, what do we do? If, if our hearts are this messed up, if we're this good at, at twisting God's goodness, 
Where do we go? How do we become clean, right? That is ultimately the question surrounding the passage. How do you go from being defiled to being clean? And if, as Jesus points out, the the worst defilement goes on in my heart, where do we look for healing? Well, I want us to return to our friend Isaiah and the scene that we read in uh, the reading of the law. Because he was facing the same problem, right? As Isaiah is in the throne room of God, and he's experiencing God's holiness. He realizes that he can't stand on his own, so he hits his knees, and he recognizes, I'm lost. I cannot abide with this. And that is the first place that we need to go. If you don't know that even your best moments are nothing more than filthy rags, then you need to put yourself in Isaiah's shoes. Because Isaiah's experience was not a solo experience. But what God tells us is that one day, each and every one of us are going to be in that place. That one day we are all going to stand before the throne of God's holiness and be exposed. And it's not your or my external deeds that will enable us to stand before God. We need something far more effective. But then, we didn't read this, but in the passage, something amazing happens to Isaiah. As he's broken before God, as he's seemingly coming undone at the seams because of God's purity and his goodness and his holiness, one of the seraphim flies down to him, and on the way it goes to God's altar and it grabs a burning white hot coal. A coal burning with the purity of God's holiness, and he presses it against Isaiah's lips. And this is what he says He says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. See, the irony of Mark 7 is that the religious leaders were so concerned about the defilement of the world around them clinging to Jesus and his disciples, that they missed the fact that the exact opposite was actually happening. As Jesus touched the sick and diseased and broken and dead, the filthy things of this world, as he touched sin, he did not become unclean. But he transferred his white-hot righteousness to them and gave them life. And this is the promise of the gospel, that you and I are broken. Jesus, again, doesn't hide that. He says, what comes out of you is what defiles you, because it's in your heart. But as you approach, and as you touch the person of Jesus, as it were, by faith, as you look to him for your healing and your cleansing, then all of his holiness and all of his purity and all of his life is given to you. And he takes all of your defilement and all of your uncleanness to him on the cross. So now, get this, rather than coming undone, like Isaiah, before God's holiness, the author of Hebrews tells us to approach the throne of grace with confidence. The same throne, with confidence. Why? Because your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. This is the work of Christ for you. This is what he offers. 
And Christians, because this is true, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, then hear this from Paul. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. It is so easy to fall back into these systems of self-righteousness. Right? We do it in so many ways. Elevating our values, elevating our traditions over God and his call in our life. So test your heart. Where are you doing this? And if you're not sure how to go about this, then maybe start by asking yourself this question. Where have I lived as if I have done nothing wrong? Where have I lived as if I have done nothing wrong? That's usually a good starting place to find this seed of self-righteousness in us. And then go take it to the cross. Go again to the throne of grace. Find comfort there. Find healing there. Jack Miller, uh, who is actually Paul Miller's dad, uh, he's no longer living. He was the guy who started the missions agency who we work for now. And he had kind of a famous saying where he said, uh, cheer up, cheer up. You are far worse than you ever thought you were. So cheer up. But you are far more loved than you could ever possibly imagine. The freedom of the gospel means that we should not be surprised by our sin. We should actually expect to see more of it as we move further into grace, as we move further into our understanding of who God is. We should expect to see more of our sin, but that means that we can stop hiding it, stop insulating it, stop deflecting it, because you know that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. This is what Christ has done for you and me. So let us pray and sing and continue to worship and rejoice in this promise. Father God, we, we do, um, we bow before you and are humbled as we recognize the nature of our hearts. And we don't want to really acknowledge the reality uh, of what our hearts are really like. So, Lord, if, if there are those here who have not done that, who have not come before your throne honestly and openly, and then I pray that they uh, would see you for who you are, a holy God, the Holy One, and that we cannot stand before you except in Christ. But that is the gift that you have given to us, that as we look to you in faith and repentance, you call us into your throne room, into your family, you call us beloved, you call us clean, you call us righteous because we stand on the work of Christ for us. Help us to repent of the areas that we uh, want to put this aside and live for ourselves and help us to follow after you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us for worship. As bleak as the picture of our hearts are, know that if your hope and your faith is in Christ, that it is finished upon the cross. And there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. And so go with these words of hope and benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.